0: You have a Bible. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, this is our sixth week through this book. And if you're, if you're new to the Bible or new to church, 2 Timothy is a, a little book written toward the end. It's at the end of the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul. It was a second letter written to Timothy, kind of his protege in the faith, a guy that Paul considered really like a son to him. And yet it's not just to Timothy... Paul wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it's, it's to all of us, as to the church as well. Uh, over the last few decades, there's been a kind of a renewed cultural fascination with this area in the country known as Appalachia. Um, if you maybe you've done some study in sort of cultural geography, and you know what I'm talking about, Appalachia is a it's a swath of the United States that kind of begins in Pennsylvania and goes south uh, through southeast Ohio, all of West Virginia, most of eastern Kentucky, some parts of western Virginia, um, and then you have part of north, northern Alabama and then middle Tennessee over to the east. And so there's this kind of swath of the country that's become, again, a renewed fascination in, in our culture with uh, television series like Dope Sick is one we watched recently on Netflix and uh, a movie, a book, it's going to become a movie called Hillbilly Elegy. In fact, some of you have mentioned that to me, that you've, you've read that. Uh, a movie a few years ago called Winter's Bone, uh, an Academy Award-nominated movie, and um, shows like Ozark and other shows that are really, they really feature that area of the world. And what they do is they kind of detail, either either by documentary or drama, some of the plight of those who have lived in that area of the country for uh, many years. Uh, to, some of those, the things that those people experience, you know, abject poverty, uh, the encroachment of drug abuse, uh, drug users in their area. In fact, my mom, who still lives in Middle Tennessee, will sometimes text me about the the meth lab that's going on across the street uh, from her in this rural area of Middle Tennessee. And well, my, my grandparents, all my grandparents grew up and lived in Appalachia their whole lives. Uh, one set in, in West Virginia and the other in, in Middle Tennessee. And uh, my, my grandmother, what well, we called her Granny, her name was Suva. Some of you have heard of Suva before, only because we try to convince our son and daughter-in-law to name their new grandbaby Suva, uh, but uh, to no avail on that one. Um, but my, gran- my grandmother Suva, uh, Granny, she was the most interesting of all my grandparents she had a fiery personality, a feisty woman, a short fuse. She didn't need a home security system like ADT. She didn't need a ring doorbell because she had a 12-gauge shotgun uh, that she was very proficient with. So any person or critter that made their way into her house, they they were going to be toast uh, rather quickly. Um, she was a she was a very kind of crazy uh, personality. And when I would go visit her, I was always captivated by her, the things she would say, the things she would do. She had in her little tiny house in Jamestown, Tennessee, this big television, a big console TV. The actual screen was pretty small, but it it was encased in this gigantic wooden box. And on top of that wooden box were all kinds of pictures, dozens of pictures in standing frames. There were so many pictures that... You really couldn't see any of them, except the ones in front, unless you walked over to them. So I said to her one time, I said, Granny, why do you have so many pictures on your TV? They're so close together, you can't really even see. And she said, you know, I have, I have a lot of people to remember, and if I don't walk over there often, I'm sure to forget someone. It's, it's easier to forget things, isn't it, than it is to remember. Sometimes even important things. Uh, for some people, they have a very hard time remembering people's names. Maybe this is you. Somebody comes up to you and you say, "Oh no, oh no, don't come closer." What am I going to say? You say, "Hey, buddy," or "Hey, guy," or "Hey, gal," or whatever. Nobody says "gal" anymore. But so you don't know. You, you don't have a hard time remembering names. For others of you, maybe it's a hard time remembering numbers. And so someone says, "Hey, what's your phone number?" You say, oh, "I got to grab my phone and check because I don't really remember it." It's easy to forget things. And if something doesn't make sense to us, something is you know, illogical or it transcends logic or it doesn't make sense, it is even easier to forget that. If there's an equation in your work or a, something that, that, that seems to be logical and makes sense, maybe you can remember but if it. But if, it if, if it's illogical, it's hard to remember. Well, the Apostle Paul, throughout his writings makes mention of the fact that the gospel itself is counterintuitive. It transcends logic. He would call it things like foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block, weakness, an offense to those who are sensible, a stench in the nostrils of those who are perishing. And because it's counterintuitive, because it transcends logic... We, it's something we have to hear over and over again. It really is an equation that doesn't fit for us. What makes sense to us is, is an equation of deserving, right? You pay your dues, you get to see the field or the court, right? You, you eat your greens, you get dessert. You work hard, you get paid. And then the gospel, then we get this news of the gospel that says, you know what, even though you haven't paid your dues, you can never pay enough dues you still receive forgiveness and acceptance. Even though you have done the opposite, even though we've done the opposite of what God requires, instead of bad people getting bad things, bad people actually get good things because of Christ. And so over and over in Paul's letters, and we see it here in 2 Timothy as well, there is this command, this instruction to keep coming back to the beauty and the fullness of of the gospel. And that's kind of where we are this morning. This message, it confounds us. It it confuses us. It's contrary to the way that we think things should be, and so we need to be regularly reminded. C.S. Lewis, in his seminal work, Mere Christianity, writes, Christ did not come to preach any brand new morality. The golden rule of the New Testament, do as you would be done by, is a summing up of what everybody at bottom had already known always known to be right. Really great moral teachers never do introduce new moralities. It is quacks and cranks who do that. As Dr. Johnson as a re- reference to, Samuel Johnson said, people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. The language of the gospel, as you've heard me say maybe many times, is it's less language of morality, do this and don't do that, and more language of substitution, And because our heart mode, the default mode of the human heart is deserving, we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. So the passage we're in this morning is really one about glory. Uh, We're going to see three things this morning, the hope of glory, the reason we will experience glory, and the guarantee of glory. So we're going to cover verses 8 through 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me begin by reading uh, verses 8 through 10. Here reads the word of the Lord. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. and Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So the phrase that opens up this section in in verse 8, it appears in the original language as a present active uh, imperative, and it's this. Keep on remembering Jesus. Keep on calling to mind Jesus. Keep on meditating on Jesus. And then Paul clarifies what he's talking about when he talks about remembering Jesus, who is the sum and content of the gospel. He, he really gives us two dimensions, if you will, two aspects of the gospel. Uh, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, he says first, and then the offspring of David. So the beauty of the gospel is that even though it is a singular message, it is, it is good news, it appears in the New Testament in various forms, various aspects or dimensions. Now, plenty have written about this, but... If we were to distill it down down to two dimensions or two aspects, I believe it would be this. The the individual personal dimension of the gospel and then the global corporate dimension of the gospel. And Paul talks about both of those here. So the individual kind of personal dimension of the gospel, uh, Paul says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So this is a statement concerning Jesus victory over sin, death and hell so that we so that we those who trust in him by faith could also be given victory over sin, death and hell. His very name testifies to his mission, Jesus in the Hebrew Yeshua it means salvation or he saves. When the angels announced Jesus arrival they said Good tidings of great joy. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus will save men, women, and children. That's that individual, personal aspect or dimension of the gospel. So, what Jesus accomplished for us is what we're to continually call to mind, at least one part of it. If you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sins, turned from your sins, and put your trust in Jesus Christ, his obedient life, his cross work, his resurrection, If you have done that, then you have been given, you have received eternal life. You've been brought to God, reconciled to God through the work of His Son. And when God sees you, He sees you not as a rebel, not as a stranger, not as an outcast or an alien, but He sees you as a fully accepted, forgiven, and beloved son or daughter. I believe that many of the fears, and you've probably heard me say this before, the anxieties, the problems we face as believers boil down, at least in some way, to our failure to really receive and rest in the gospel. For the man struggling with a, a so-called father wound, you know, who feels rejected by his own father, what the gospel announces is, yeah, you have a father who loves you, who approves of you in Christ, who accepts you, and who isn't going anywhere. I, I met with a group of pastors, I don't know, seven or eight months ago. I hadn't met any of them before I got there. This was we met in Atlanta, but we were kind of leaders in the southeast region of this church planning movement. And um and so met with this group of pastors, I think there were maybe eight of us, and the guy who was leading it said, okay, I'm gonna give you a big sheet of paper. So it was like, you know, it was like this huge sheet of paper. And some tape, you stick it on the wall, and then I want you to, in the next 20 minutes, draw out your life, uh, and then you're gonna you're gonna go over your drawing and explain it, you know, to the rest of us. And this is a hard thing. You think about that. how would you draw your life in 20 minutes? Well, we did that, and I did mine, and uh, did my you know, introduction, and then the next guy, and the next guy, and the guy who was at the very end, the young guy. When I say young; he's probably 35 years old. And uh, he, he was sharing his, and he talked about when his father left when he was five, and he just broke down. And he said, I, I don't know what's happening to me. Like, I talk about this before. I don't usually break down when I share this. But he said, it's clear to me that I still have there's some issue. There's something going on. There's some, some father wound that I have that I just, I guess it's a very real thing. There's a re- real pain there. Well, the gospel is the answer to that. For the, for the young lady who feels constantly insecure about her body, The gospel said not only does God love you so much that he designed you and created you uniquely, but also he cherishes you and values you the way that you are, the way that you look. You are beautiful to the creator God for the man who lives with constant guilt over a past sin. The gospel rightly declares that the judge of all the earth no longer considers you guilty. He has declared you not guilty. And if that's the case, then what somebody else says about you or even what you think about yourself pales in comparison for the woman who feels like a failure as a mother. The gospel is the news, the good news, that God is deeply pleased with you in Christ. And so the gospel answers, these are all gospel issues. Uh, now, now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that that all people need is the gospel and nothing else. I mean, there are, there are real physiological medical issues that we need to consider as well, but we don't do so at the expense of looking at our spiritual situation. So that's the individual dimension. This is what Paul says. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the conqueror over death, hell, and sin. But he also says, remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. He's not just Jesus, but the Christ. This, by the way, you you probably know, was not his last name, like Williams or Smith or Jones. This was actually a title. He is Christ, which means he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the the, the one anointed to fill the role of prophet, priest, and king. He is the king who brings in the kingdom of God. So what Paul says in verse 8 that Jesus Christ is the offspring of David, this is Paul's way of saying this same Jesus is actually the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. He's the one through whom God promised to restore the whole world, the entire cosmos. He, He is the one promised from the beginning to reverse the curse brought on by Adam and Eve's rebellion. So this is what we might call the global or the the corporate dimension of the gospel. See, the gospel is not just about God saving souls, as the revivalist preacher says. The gospel is the news of God's plan to redeem and restore all of creation, all of the world. And it was this recognition that was really one reason Paul could suffer the way that he did. It was the hope for the future that included not just Paul and not just his fellow believers, as we'll see in a minute, but the whole world. So here's the first point as it, results to the, as it relates to the hope of glory. Remembering the multidimensional gospel, okay, the individual personal aspect, the corporate global aspect, empowers us immediately and stirs our anticipation for what's next. So the Holy Spirit works through the gospel to empower us and to comfort us and to equip us for the task at hand, reassuring us of God's love and pouring into us God's favor and and a recognition of the truth of the gospel. Those who know God's love for them, those who understand and recognize they've been forgiven, they live with a sort of freedom that no one else can live with. So it empowers us and it, and it stirs us with anticipation of what's next. Those who know God has something amazing in store for his children live with a confidence and a boldness, even enduring suffering, because they know that suffering never, will never have the last word. The hope of glory is held out in the gospel where God's individual saving activity and his global saving activity are contained. Now, look at verse 10 again. Paul says, Therefore, so in light of the, the boundless power of the Word of God, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain or, or experience the salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory. A few months ago here at Capshaw, we, we kind of team taught through uh, John chapter 17. So I took a couple weeks and another pastor took a week and another pastor took a week. And we spent four weeks in, in what's known as uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, Jesus' prayer to the Father on the eve of his crucifixion where Jesus prays within earshot of his followers in the presence of the disciples so that they will understand. And Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain, as it were, on what happened before God created the world. You ever thought about about what was God doing before he created the world? What was God up to before he made the world? Augustine, who kind of got tired of answering, answering that question, famously responded when he was asked, what was God doing before he created the world? He said, creating hell for people who ask such foolish questions. Um, I don't know. I don't really think that was the case. But, uh, but I've wondered many times, what was God doing? What was he up to? You know, what was that inner Trinitarian dialogue, so to speak, like before God created? Well, we know that God never needed anything. He was never without anything that he needed. He's always existed in perfect harmony. But John 17 actually gives us an inside glimpse into what God was doing before he created the world, sort of the, the, God's pre-creating activity. John 17, 1 and 2 reads this way. Father, Jesus speaking to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Out of all the flesh, so which is a phrase that just means out of all of humanity, God gave Jesus some who would belong to Jesus. Before he even made the world, God gave Jesus some. And those are the ones who would belong to Jesus. They would be Jesus' worshipers, his brothers and sisters, co-heirs with Christ. They would be the ones that Jesus would purchase with his own blood. This all happened before the world was made. God the Father and God the Son entered into an agreement, a pact, a covenant, what some theologians call the covenant of redemption, in which the Father gave to the Son those who would belong to him. These are the elect that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 2. And when Paul says he endures everything for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain salvation, Paul's not suggesting for a second that he's the one who will guarantee their salvation or that he is the one who will make sure that it it happens. Paul's simply stating his motivation for continuing to proclaim the gospel so that those whom God has chosen for salvation will in fact finally be saved through the proclamation of the gospel. And again, it's a salvation, verse 10, in Christ and with glory. What this means is God's salvation is not deliverance from our current situation, although sometimes by His grace He does that. God's salvation is not prosperity right now. It's not, uh, as some churches even have in their statement of faith, it's not a guarantee of our success right now. God's salvation, Paul's talking about something that is a future glory. It is an eternal glory. So what's the reason we will experience this glory? Here's our second point. Our future eternal glory is more certain than any other reality in our lives because the Father has covenanted with the Son to bring it about. So the glory in store for you, if you are in Christ is just as certain a reality as the sky above your head when you walk out of this place. It's just as certain a reality as the real chair that you're sitting in. Because God the Father has covenanted with God the Son to give the Son some whom the Son would most surely save. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning... If you professed an indica- profess Jesus, that's an indication that your name, praise God, was one of them, if you've trusted in Jesus. Now, in case you're wondering, as someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, how do I know if I'm elect? Like, I'm really worried about this. I said, the answer is, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? And she said, yeah, yes, I am. I said, then you're elect. The only reason you've been able to do that is because God elected you because God the Father gave your name to God the Son before you were ever even created. A few days ago, after a 12-hour shift, Janine came home from work at the hospital and literally just fell into the couch. Just fell into the couch and she she could barely move. And through tears, she said to me, you wouldn't believe how sick our patients were today she said I I would tell you about it but you couldn't handle the details I said look I'm a pastor okay I can handle it and then when she told me I said gross why did you share that with me why would you tell me that she told me about one woman in her unit of course never by name but who was so sick and infected that she was immobile she arrived at the hospital she couldn't move she was brought there by her daughter, her adult, her adult daughter, who was supposed to be taking care of her, her mother. Only when this elderly lady arrived, I won't tell you what she was covered with from, from head to toe. But this elderly lady, lady arrived with all sorts of infections, gaping wounds in her body. She was diseased and in immense pain. She could hardly breathe. And on top of that, of course, heartbroken that her own daughter, wouldn't take the time to care for her you know we don't talk a lot we don't think a lot and I say with some shame I certainly don't think a lot about future glory I don't think that much as much as I should about the coming of Jesus Christ well he will uh, return to the earth and meet out his righteous judgment and restore all things to peace and shalom I don't think that much about the restoration of all things, frankly, but if you've been sitting in a hospital in immense pain and you can barely get a breath, you long for the restoration of all things. If you're in an abusive relationship with a husband who beats you when he gets angry, you long for the restoration of all things. If you're a battered woman in the Middle East whose husband locks you in a closet only to abuse you when he lets you out, you long for the restoration of all things. If you struggle with constant depression and you just can't seem to get the fog to lift. If you feel like you're alone in the world, this world where no one really understands you. If you're a victim of injustice, if you've been unfairly treated, maligned, slandered, You long for the restoration of all things. You long for your future glory. Twice in this letter already, Paul has mentioned that day. It's a phrase that appears in the singular uh, some 26 times in the New Testament. And it refers to that final day of history, the day of the Lord's judgment, when Jesus' victory will result in a beautiful and final restoration of all things. When there will be no longer any injustice, any abuse, any hatred, any conflict, any evil, or any sin. And Paul's belief that that day would come was anchored in Paul's hope in the gospel. More specifically, the the person who he says is preached in my gospel, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, The offspring of David. This was on Paul's mind. And he tells Timothy, keep it on your mind. And he tells us by extension, keep it on your mind. The same Jesus. It was his understanding of both where he was in Christ and what was in store for him in Christ that enabled him to endure all kinds of persecution, imprisonment, and suffering. Now, in order to make his words memorable... Paul kind of wraps up this section with a hymn. You know how when you're little, you, or maybe with your kids, you try to help them to remember something, maybe the alphabet or the books of the Bible or whatever it is, by putting it to song. So here, Paul will actually uh, break out into a hymn. Look at verse 11. This saying is trustworthy for, and you, you see it's probably indented in whatever translation you have. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. So this, there's kind of four stanzas in this hymn. The first one, Um, resembles almost exactly what Paul wrote in Romans 6. If we have died with him, it means if we've died to our sins, if we've turned from our sin, our self-reliance and trusted in Jesus, then we live with him. In other words, his resurrection power is at work in us right now. So even though there is a future aspect of the salvation of God, there's also a present reality as well, the work of the Holy Spirit in us right now. Then look at verse 12a, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So one aspect of my teaching that has over the years caused the most, I don't know, I don't want to say consternation, um, maybe the most raised eyebrows, is this idea that, now you're you're so theologically sophisticated, this is not gonna, you're not gonna raise your eyebrows at this. But it's this idea that, as Christians, our future hope is not. Floating around in an ethereal world, you know, playing harps while we rest on clouds. No, but in fact, we will live on a real earth, the new earth that's been refurnished by fire, restored by the power of the Lord Jesus, doing earthly things. So forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, you're going to be doing earthly things, gardening. Building, creating, writing, singing, eating, dancing, playing golf, all of those things, right? Some of you will finally be able to dance for the first time. Doing these earthly things, right? On a new earth that's been reformed, restored by fire. So, But then Paul says, he actually goes one step further and adds to this glorious reality. He says, not only will we live on this new earth, we will also reign with Jesus, We will be kings and queens with Jesus, not just filling out and cultivating the new creation, but actually ruling over the new creation as kings and queens. Now, if I were a cool, young church planter with skinny jeans and a mullet, I would say, turn to your neighbor and say, you go, king, you go, queen. But this is what Paul is saying. We're going to reign over all of creation. I'm not that cool, so you can see that didn't go so well. Uh, But I love what R.C. Sproul says. He writes, At the resurrection of the dead, we will sit on thrones alongside our Savior. And this next phrase is so rich. And enjoy by grace what is His by right. We will reign with Jesus. Now, of course, this is for those who persevere in the faith. This is for those who, who continue, but God will enable those He's chosen to continue. Look at verse 12b. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Now, this is a real and terrifying warning where Paul basically is just quoting from Jesus or saying the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 10. Now, we don't want to, we don't want to blunt the force of this warning, but this is a reference to apostasy not simply denying Jesus under pressure. After all, Peter was exhibit A, wasn't he? Of someone who denied Jesus under pressure and yet was fully restored and forgiven. So this is a reference to those who apostatize, apostasy. Apostasy refers to those who renounce the faith, those who profess Christ, those who made a profession. Maybe they were baptized. Maybe they walked with Jesus. They were part of a believing community. Maybe they served in an important ministry. And then they said, you know what, I'm... I'm no longer a Christian. These are the ones who never uh, had hearts that were regenerate, made alive by the Holy Spirit, but walked as though they did. Now, lest you are fear-stricken, wondering if you will make it to the end, Paul ends with one of the most beautiful and comforting statements in all his letters, the fourth stanza of this hymn. Look at verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now, and here we have all the way going back to the beginning. Now, maybe as we're working through that hymn that I just read you saying, See, it is all about what we do. It's all about merit and so on. And then Paul turns it upside down when he says in verse 13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Those who are faithless are held fast by God because he is faithful. Those who are bad get good things in Christ because God is good. Those who deserve hell and death and punishment get instead life, eternal life, eternal blessings, all because Christ and His work and because God is faithful. Here, fairness, you ever had one of your kids say to you, that's not fair? Here, fairness is thrown out the window and for our good. Pastor and scholar Kent Hughes writes this. The first three stanzas record predictable, equitable responses. But the fourth stanza, that begins if we we are faithful, faithless rather, is followed by a surprise response, one that is gloriously inequitable. He remains faithful. This is followed by the magnificent reason for he cannot deny himself. If you are in Christ this morning, you don't have to worry about your future. You don't have to worry if you'll make it. You don't have to worry how your life will end or even whether or not you'll persevere. Here's why. It's our final point. The guarantee of eternal glory for the believer is not the strength of our willpower, but the constancy of God's character. Even though we will fail and we will sin, and we have, by all accounts, sinned this morning. We've had impure motives, selfish thoughts, impatient, wrong-headed desires. We have fallen infinitely short of God's standard of perfection. But even though we will fail and even though we will fall into unfaithfulness, even as we try to honor God, God remains faithful because His character demands it. And since Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient and faithful to God in every way, obedient even to a death on the cross for us, listen to this, God will receive us by faith in the same way He received Jesus. And one day He will welcome us and give us all the good things He has in store for us, for all eternity because God himself never changes his character is constant he cannot deny himself and so we sing with great confidence and joy together great is thy faithfulness O God our Father let's pray Lord why would you be so kind to us why would you give us this great hope of future glory Why would you forgive us of all of our sins and reckon us righteous before you? It's only because you are a gracious and faithful God. Why would you stick with us when we are so faithless at times? It's only because you are a faithful God. And I pray this morning that you would remind us and assure us of your faithfulness. I pray that for those who are outside of Christ, just investigating This person named Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would work in such a way so that salvation is. Today is the day of salvation for some. Bring those who are wandering, those who are lost, those who are questioning, those who are spiritually dead, bring them to a place of saving faith. Bring them to a place of repentance over sin and enable them to trust in you. And Father, we know that every good thing that happens, Everything that happens today that will happen today is not because of anything we have done or schemed or plotted or planned or any word that I've said, but only because you are the faithful God. Help us to believe what we sing now as we sing, Great is your faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.